Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I'm your humble host, Coach Jason Coop. And this episode of the podcast, as well as the episode that is coming up next week, is going to be a little bit of a pivot. I recently wrote an article uh, for the TrainRight website based on my personal heat acclimation strategies that I'm using for the Cocodona 250. It's a strategy that I've used with numerous athletes and it's also a strategy that's becoming more widely adopted within the endurance community. And based on the feedback for that particular article, what I wanted to do is I wanted to revisit some of the podcasts that I've previously done with experts in this area. And next week, I'm gonna talk with one of our coaches about how we are using this protocol specifically for our athletes that are training for hot weather events, such as the Western States 100 or Badwater, or in my case, the Cocodona 250. So this week is a re-release of the podcast that I did with Julian Perriard who is one of the foremost researchers in this area of heat stress and heat acclimation. He wrote a fantastic review paper just recently that I'll link up in the show notes titled Exercise Under Heat Stress, Thermoregulation, Hydration, Performance Implications, and Mitigation Strategies that is in the American Physiological Society's paper for for physiological reviews. That's a big mouthful. And I encourage all of you to check it out because it's an easy paper to read, it's free and it's open access. But if you're listening to the podcast, pay special attention to right around minute number 57 where we start talking about this two-phase protocol that we are going to highlight next week and that I highlighted on the Train Right website. I hope everybody here takes it to heart. Summer will be right around the corner and you need to start thinking about your heat mitigation strategies now, not four weeks before the actual event. So with that as a backdrop, here is a re-release of my podcast with none other than Julian Perriard, all about heat acclimation strategies. It took me, I don't know, maybe three days to actually kind of weed through it all. And it's all material that I'm, you know, familiar with for the most part. Yeah. But it was hefty. <laughs> it was, yeah. And to be honest, I don't think we intended for it to be that large, but it takes so long to make these things, to, to, to write these things. It took us, well, you get two years, but it took us two and a half because we got delayed. And then, um, yeah, we, we keep talking. We kept talking and say, oh, yeah, well, maybe we should add this bit to make that clear later on. <laughs> Yeah, and I was doing the bulk of the writing, so I was like, well, yeah, it was, but yeah, it's written now, so it's, it's all good. <laughs> it's good to know that project creep happens in academia as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's one of those things as well. I don't think, you know, like that you read from start to finish in one go. I think it's one no. of those things that you grab, you know, bits and pieces that you need, hopefully. Um, yeah. Well, congrats on it. I mean, this is easily a book. This is easily a, a book chapter in a graduate oh. level exercise phys, phys course. I'm sure you'll get tapped for something like that and just amend what what is here because it's it's very very comprehensive. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. Yeah, it was uh, that was the that was the idea. So I'm glad that it it's perceived to be. <laughs> <laughs> so so they, that's this kind of like leads into like my first question. It's like describe a little bit about the work that you do at the university and like what was the genesis of this this behemoth of a paper that we've just been talking about 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can tell you a bit about my journey as well. Like how yeah. I got here. So I'm, I'm Canadian. So as you can tell, I don't have an Australian accent. Um, so I'm Canadian. I did, uh, I did my undergrad and my master's at the university of Ottawa. And then, um, I kind of got the triathlon bug as many people do once they do a triathlon. So I kind of got into that. And then for a while I did all right. So I won our, our national age group championship. So I thought, Oh, I can try my hand at being a pro, which yeah, which I did. So I went to our national training center and, um, um, I trained for five years and did like world cups and continental cups and things like that, which was, which was, which was amazing. Um, but then I realized, all right, I, this is very fun and enjoyable, but I'm not going to the Olympics. So I thought, okay, well, what else can I do? So, um, I was very much obviously at that point interested in performance and performance in the heat. Um, so I found uh, a great place to do a PhD at the university of Sydney, and I was looking at that time at the mechanisms that kind of mediate performance. So what are the pathways by which performance is impaired under heat stress? So at the time, uh, you know, there was the cardiovascular element so cardiovascular function and then that critical core temperature. I don't know if you've heard about that. So when you reach a really high core temperature, you know, the, I guess, neuromuscular activation is reduced, the muscles, therefore your performance is decreased. And then another one was anticipatory fatigue. So I kind of looked at those aspects. Um, once I finished that, I went to Aspatar, which is a sports medicine hospital in Qatar. Um, and as you might know, the World Cup for soccer or football is in Qatar next year. And they were going to have it in August. And obviously, August Qatar is like, it's yeah. literally it's 48 degrees Celsius, 50 degrees. And um, so we tried different things to see how well people acclimatize or acclimate and so forth. And we're like, well, it's the difference between 36, 37, 40 degrees and 50 degrees. So it's quite hot. So they've moved that. Then after six years there, I, I moved to I moved back to Australia, so in, in Canberra, where I am now at the Research Institute for Sport and Exercise, uh, and I've continued my research there. So looking at the mechanisms of fatigue and the heat, but also kind of pathways to mitigate that or to reduce the impact of heat stress. So heat acclimatization, heat acclimation, uh, cooling strategies, ensuring proper hydration. And I'm kind of venturing a little bit as well into the heat therapy side of things for older individuals and people at risk of falling. So that's kind of where my, my area sits, but um, I still have a very big passion for, for sport, obviously in performance, particularly endurance sports. It's interesting that you went through that journey. Cause that's basically what our outline is going to be, right? We're going to talk about like, what are the things that make you hot to start out yeah. with? And then how do you mitigate them? Cause ultimately that's what the athletes are interested in. We can get into a lot of the, underpinning physiology as it as it comes along but the end part of it what do you do to actually mitigate it i feel like this is an area that's starting to actually come around where we're starting to find things that have really good efficacy that are reasonable to implement which is always important with athletes right you don't want to be running around like a chicken with your head cut off doing all these interventions that don't work and or yeah. interfere with training and we see it in the playing field whether it's on rugby pitch or out in the Olympic, you know, track and field venue and things like that. Like I'm, I'm starting to feel like we're, we're getting a good grip on it where we're seeing some of the same mitigation and acclimation strategies kind of over and over and over, especially at the high level sports. That's right. That's right. And I think one of the points that you underpin there that's quite important is not interfering with, with training because a lot of the, the research that we do in the lab, it's very controlled. You know, you're like, okay, let's put people in the, in the hot room for 90 minutes at 
for 10 days straight, which, which is ideal for looking at, you know, the adaptations, the mechanisms and so forth. But for an athlete who's, who's tapering, like naturally, you're not going to heat acclimatize six months before your big competition. So it's, it's tailoring your training or more so your intervention around your training so that you keep your training optimized and you kind of supplement that with, with whatever intervention you'll do to ensure that you are properly um, prepared for your race. So you're right. And then kind of tailoring that for different sports, whether it's team sports or even individual sports or endurance sports. So yes, we are, we have different, very, very many different strategies to use now. So it's kind of using a combination of those. Yeah. Well, we're going to come back to that. Cause I always have this most hilarious story about my introduction to ultra running being at Badwater, which is kind of a, that is trial by fire in every sense of the word. And, uh, yeah. I use it as a point to illustrate some of those facts, but let, let's back up a little bit and kind of set the table with this. The, one, one of the things that, that this paper did a, a really, really good job of is starting is outlining everything that can make you hot. And most people think of it as the environment, especially in ultra in ultra running. We think about races like the Western States 100, which typically gets uh, temperatures of in excess of 100 degrees, especially in the canyons or the Badwater 135 that I just mentioned. And that's while that environment is a dominant player, there are also other things that athletes need to take into consideration when they're looking at the landscape of how, how, like how hot could I potentially get during these events? And is it going to be a failure point? So let's, let's set that up first. What are the things that athletes need to look at within the events that they're training for? Yeah, that's a very good point. And I think as you highlighted, the environment obviously is probably the first thing that you that you look at. And I think when people think of the environment, they think of all right, how hot is it going to get? And maybe after that, they think, well, how humid is going to is it going to get? So those are obviously the primary factors. Um, so what's the temperature going to be? What's the environmental um, relative humidity going to be? And I think one of the first things we need to remember with with temperature is when you look at the temperature gauge, you know, when you look at the Bureau of Meteorology or whatever, when they when they tell you what temperature it is, that temperature is always measured in the shade so that's temperature in the shade so it's the first thing to remember that's quite important because the other factors that affect the thermal environment um, in addition to temperature and relative humidity are solar load or solar radiation so the heat emitted from the sun and oftentimes in degrees Celsius, um, you, know, you can have a certain temperature outside in the shade, let's say 30 degrees, but it could be 10, 15 degrees warmer in the direct sun. So if there's not, if it's not cloudy whatsoever and you're in direct sunlight, it can be a lot hotter than what the temperature gauge tells you, because once again, that's, that's measured in the shade and the way we measure, um, temperature, um, like exposed temperature is with a black globe. So essentially you stick a thermometer in a black globe because that it attracts all the radiative heat and so forth. So it's very important to understand as well, like, will it be cloudy? Will it be, um, will it be completely clear? And I guess the fourth aspect of the environment is, is wind speed. And wind speed is quite important because that helps with thermoregulation as well. Um, and those are kind of the, um, the four parameters of the environment that are important. So the temperature, the relative humidity, um, the solar radiation and the, um, and the wind speed. And the reason they're important is because they affect thermoregulation. And there's two kind of ways that we thermoregulate. One is through like autonomic responses or automatic responses, essentially. So as we get hot, um, we send more blood to the periphery, to the skin. And that's essentially a way of taking blood that's really hot in the central circulation, sending it to the skin, and then we can um, lose that to the environment. But the important thing there is that there needs to be a gradient between the skin and the environment, right? So if your skin is, is, is warm and it's cooler outside, then that's not a problem. You can lose heat 
via convection, so the kind of wind flowing over your skin to the environment. But if it's really hot outside and the air temperature is warmer than your skin temperature, then you actually gain heat via uh, convection. Um, having said that, that pathway to losing heat or heat exchange is, is important, but it's not as important as sweating. So sweating, especially in hot conditions, is the primary avenue of, of, of heat loss, especially, again, like if, if it's hotter outside than your skin temperature, then obviously you're not losing heat via convection. So it's really at some point becoming the, the primary avenue for heat loss. Um, so obviously with sweating being very important, you want those beads of sweat to evaporate. And that's one of the things that people might not necessarily realize is that, you know, if you're sweating and those beads of sweat are simply just kind of trickling down your skin and falling to the ground, you're just basically getting dehydrated, right? So that bead of sweat that forms on your skin needs to evaporate for it to kind of cool your skin and kind of start cooling you down. So um, if we go back to the environment, if it's very humid, then the air around the body is, is kind of saturated, has a lot of water vapor content within it. So it's more difficult for those beads of sweat to evaporate. So if it's really dry, you might be sweating quite a lot, but not even realize it because the beads of sweat are evaporating more readily. Um, and I guess another thing with that is the wind speed. So if you have a bit more wind, that kind of helps with the evaporation of sweat because it kind of removes that layer of maybe saturated water vapor around the, uh, on the skin. So it helps with, uh, with sweating. So a lot of things, a lot of moving parts there and things to consider. It's, it's, I'm glad that you mentioned the clothing and the sweating, uh, piece of things, because this is a piece of advice that we see thrown thrown around a lot on both sides of the fence in coaching circles and also athletic circles is what type of clothing should you actually wear in these environments and i always kind of come back to that fundamental piece that you just mentioned is you want the water to evaporate because that's what makes that's what creates the temperature gradient you spend a little bit of time talking about that in the paper what did you guys come up with when you were evaluating the right clothing properties to actually wear in hot environments? Yeah, that's a good point. And I think there's several, um, most of the clothing that you can get for um, performing in the heat, I guess, uh, is quite good. But the issue becomes, the well, the issue becomes or arises, I should say, at the point where um, whatever garment you're wearing becomes saturated. Because initially when you're exercising, you start sweating, I think those garments are quite good at wicking the water from your sweat, putting it through the um, the garment and then kind of evaporating. But once you're sweating a lot and that garment becomes saturated with, with water, then it becomes less effective at kind of evaporating the water from its from the fabric, I guess. So, um, yeah, so you want obviously a, a, a fabric that's, that's wicking that can take the sweat off and bring it to the surface of the garment to then kind of be, uh, evaporated or, or, or you can lose heat and with by convection by cooling the garment down, I guess. But, um, so I think it's very important to keep that in mind. And what about in that same vein, the use of cold water and or ice at the same time because that that almost has it has an effect where yes you're you're actually putting the temperature gradient on these pieces of skin right through the through the ice or through the water but at the same time you're not allowed you can't you can put get yourself in a situation where you're not allowing it to evaporate yeah well that's an interesting one because People also think sometimes about using cold water or um, or ice to kind of cool you down, but it doesn't really cool you down. Like if, if right. we think of cooling, 
we're thinking of cooling down your core temperature. So if you're just putting a bit of water, cold water on your head, um, it might make you feel better for a little bit because it feels cooler. Um, and it might cool your skin down a little bit, but it certainly won't cool your core temperature down. Um, if you're continually doing it, then maybe at some point it'll kind of um, slow down the rate of rise in, in temperature, but it'll still go, it'll still go up um, because the surface area that you're covering is quite small and, you know, you're putting a small amount that's not continuous. Um, so in terms of evaporating itself, yes, you're right. That's, that's another side of it. Um, but I think in terms of cooling you down, it would, it wouldn't necessarily do it make you feel better. Um, and in terms of cooling the temperature of the skin for evaporation, it might have a bit of an effect there, but I think you're, you'd, you'd get back up the temperature relatively quickly unless you keep doing it. Yeah. And you mentioned that if, if it's not evaporating, all you're doing is you're just losing water through sweat and you're becoming dehydrated, which is another one of the key ways that your body thermoregulates, right? Is you've got, you have to keep your plasma volume up. And I want to spend a little bit more time talking about this because this is particularly in the ultra marathon world, but also in your kind of previous experience in triathlon, this becomes a big issue because of the duration. And unlike the, the, some of the, uh, uh, heat acclimation protocols that, you know, I was raving about earlier that we're starting to get a good fix on. This has been an area where you still see the, these big discrepancies in terms of how to hydrate and people kind of fall into two camps, right? Do you want to hydrate on a schedule or do you want to hydrate based on thirst? And that might be beyond the scope of this right here, but I, I want to know, or I guess the listeners are going to be curious to know, why is maintaining your hydration status so important in thermoregulation? Yeah, well, I think there's two things. There's the there's thermal regulation and then the cardiovascular response, which are intimately linked. But as I mentioned, like sweat becomes the primary avenue by which we lose heat when it's hot outside. So obviously, if you think of sweating, you're, you're thinking of losing body water. So as you dehydrate, you can think of having less body water to use towards um, towards sweating. And there is some research out there that's demonstrated that both skin blood flow and the sweating response are impaired after certain levels of dehydration. So the more dehydrated you get, um, you can think of you know, the body trying to conserve water and then sending a bit less to um, to the sweat glands and so forth, or the sweat glands um, producing less um, less fluid and secreting less fluid for evaporation. So um, that's part of it. So if you get very, very dehydrated and you're in hot conditions, then you might compromise your ability to thermoregulate and lose heat via sweating, which kind of compounds things, right? Because you're already very hot. And then if you're sweating less, then you're going to get even hotter because your avenue or your, your ability to dissipate heat um, is impaired. And then in terms of performance, obviously, if you get quite hot, um, being hot and having a high core temperature and, and your blood being warm kind of exacerbates or increases your heart rate for a given workload, for example. So there's um, the pacemaker cells, for example, in the heart kind of sense that there's an autonomic response. So for a given workload, your heart rate is going to be higher. And then if you lose quite a lot of fluids, then you'll have less blood volume, as you mentioned. So your plasma volume is going to go down. So oxygen carrying capacity is going to be somewhat compromised. So you'll have to increase your heart rate to kind of bring, bring blood to the working muscles. So your cardiovascular response will be exacerbated as well. Uh, so again, for the same workloads so or running at the same speed, you'll have a, an even higher heart rate. And that's because once again, thermoregulation, cardiovascular function, and you know blood flow, they're all intimately linked. It, but I keep coming back to this, this kind of discrepancy between 
how much body water it would it be appropriate to lose depending upon the duration of the event. And, you know, I mean, the, the longtime listeners to this podcast will remember I had a, I had a Stavros Kavaros on who I'm sure you're, you're very familiar with. And he's pretty adamant that, listen, you know, you can tolerate kind of up to a 2% dehydration and that's, you know, we can, we can function normally, but we really don't know in an ultra situation how much more dehydration you can actually tolerate based on these other fluids that just naturally get lost that aren't really contributing to the plasma the plasma volume that you're talking about that's so integral to these to these physiological functions and you see that the 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 real life manifestation of not knowing that comes out in how the medical team at different races manages themselves and I've been around ultra running enough where I have been at two different hundred mile races in the same year that were separated by three weeks. And in the pre-race meeting before one of them, one, you know, one medical, one medical doctor that is responsible, for, that is responsible for the race is telling us that you cannot drink enough, that you just need to drink and maintain your body weight as much as possible. And the other one is saying, listen, you, we can tolerate up to an 8% amount of dehydration and you'll be totally fine. And the athletes that kind of like that are at those races, they're be, they're going to be like, okay, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Right. And so I kind of work through this with a lot of academic type of practitioners to try to get, to try to have the listeners understand that it, those are hard answers to kind of come by. And it's the duration that compounds the whole issue, right? It's, are you running for five hours or 10 hours or 15 hours or 20 hours that we all lump into this ultra marathon group that kind of makes things really complicated? Yes. Yes. You're, I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's very, very complicated. I don't think there's a straightforward answer. I think the other thing too, is that, you know, in terms of tolerating, I mean, yes, we can tolerate 8% dehydration. I don't think anything too dramatic will happen in terms of, of health. You might not feel great, but you can tolerate it. But then it comes down to what are your goals? Right. So, you know, you finish in the best state possible. Do you want to optimize your performance throughout your run? And you're right, there's a very big difference between a four-hour run and a 15-hour run. Because naturally, you know, given everything being the same, the environment, the course, and so forth, you'll be out there for much longer. So um, you'll be producing less heat, likely, in the 15-hour run than the four-hour run, because you'll be running at a lower metabolic heat production. And I think that's the other thing I forgot to mention earlier. Um, you know, within the environment, obviously, that creates thermal stress. But probably the most important avenue of of well, I guess the, the the greatest level of heat that we can gain is from uh, metabolic heat production and exercising ourselves, right? Because if you think of someone lying on a beach and it's 40 degrees or 100 degrees outside, it's not too much of an issue. But if someone's doing an ultra on that same beach, 40 degrees or 100 degrees, that's very different because we produce heat, right? And as humans, we're very inefficient. So some of that heat or that uh, energy is directed towards movement, but you know, 10, 15% maybe, but the rest is released as heat. So we produce lots of heat. And the harder we go, the harder the run, the more heat we produce. So again, if you're running four hours, you're probably going to run slightly harder than if you're running 15, 20 hours. So those are some of the things that we should consider as well. So how long is the race? How much heat am I going to produce? Do I want to optimize my performance? Um, and I guess my answer to, to all of that, to come back to your, to your question is um, I agree with, with Starvos, you know, it's like after a certain point of dehydration, um, your performance and thermoregulation are going to start to be impaired. 
I would I would say though that it's not like you know you're reaching a cliff and it just kind yeah, of yeah. falls. It's kind of progressive. So someone might get to a two three percent body mass loss, but because they're running at a relatively somewhat submaximal intensity, performance might not necessarily be impaired. You know, but if you're doing like a really hard 30, 40 minute one hour run, where you know you really need to be on on top of everything and everything needs to be optimized and maybe you'll see some performance decrements there but if you're you know a few percent dehydrated and you're running at you know running walking running walking then i don't think your performance per se is going to be impaired or your thermal regulation but i think that does become a point depending on again how long you've been out there how much you are dehydrated how hot it is so i think it's it's very context specific and i think in terms of those recommendations when we did kind of a bit of a historical look at that. I think that's what, I think the recommendations nowadays are becoming a bit more um, tailored to, I yeah. guess, the content yeah. in which you're exercising. You know, initially in the 50s and, well, initially when people started doing marathons, it was seen as a weakness, you know, to, to yeah. eat and run. <laughs> and that's obviously changed a lot to, as you said, you know, drinking a certain amount over a certain amount of time, um, drinking to, to, to fully offset sweat losses, which I think is a bit, was a bit dangerous. And they saw some cases of hyponatremia, um, where you kind of have fluid overload, which can lead to cerebral edema to then, to then being a bit more specific. Cause again, the other thing we have to think about is, um, within a certain sport, you know, it's easy to say, drink as much as you can or drink like this, but depending on the constraints of the sport, whether you can carry fluids or whether there's aid stations that, X number of kilometers or miles. I mean, obviously those things come into play when you're trying to plan or not, or drink to thirst, you know, your, your fluid strategy. So I think newer recommendations kind of think of that a little bit more. Um, and I think, you know, the good, well, all the good ones, I guess the most balanced ones, I should say, um, you know, are the ones that look at the sport per se and, you know, and then kind of contextualize it. So if you're going to exercise, in hot conditions, maybe in, you know, for more than 60, 90 minutes, then maybe it is worth having a fluid hydration strategy. Um, especially if you're exercising at a high intensity, if you're exercising in cool conditions at a slow, um, at a slower, um, slower speed, for example, then you, maybe you can drink to thirst, but I think for ultras, this, and this is just my opinion, but for ultras, given that they're so long, and there's so much preparation that goes into it, especially with nutrition, right? So if you're thinking just of nutrition, well, why wouldn't you think of hydration as well? So it's understanding your body, understanding the pace at which you'll be going, the environment in which you'll be, and how much sweat you lose. Um, and I guess the other thing to that is with running, as opposed to cycling, for example, there's a lot less bouncing around in cycling. So you can probably drink more in cycling, whereas running, you don't want to have too many things in your stomach sloshing around. So there's gastric um, gastric comfort that comes into play. So, um, well, as you can tell, it's a very complex answer. <laughs> yeah, totally. But here's what I keep coming back to, and you touched a little bit of uh, you touch on this a little bit about your paper. The consequences for losing too much plasma volume, losing too much of your body water, are exacerbated. The performance-related consequences are exacerbated when it's hot because you can't thermoregulate as well and or when the intensity is high because the thermal load is higher in both of those cases. So you stay well hydrated in the heat, your performance will be impaired because your cardiovascular response um, is kind of exacerbated. Yeah, exactly. And so I look at those two situations and I'm like, that's when you really have to have it nailed. That's when you really have to have this whole strategy dialed. If you're exercising in 
you know, 50 degrees Fahrenheit or whatever, like where they set all the world marathon majors, right? And there's a lot of the tales of these athletes that are, that get 6% dehydrated, 8% dehydrated, that still have phenomenal marathons. Haile Gebrselassie comes to mind. That story gets regurgitated every time we start talking about dehydration. It's like, yeah, he's a good athlete. And he was only 8% dehydrated at the very end of a marathon that was in like 47 degrees, you know, Fahrenheit type, type, type of weather. That's not the case when you're exercising or trying to compete in really hot conditions or when the duration is a whole lot longer. That's right. And I think, to be honest, I think one of the things we can expect is that people will be dehydrated, like especially you know, in, in a race like that, it's, it's so long, it's so hard. And again, the fluid, depending on what your sweat rate is and your intensity and so forth, it's very difficult to consume enough fluids to, to remain you hydrate or not lose any body mass firstly and secondly like i said if you're running if, if you're trying if you're sweating a lot like you know 1.5 liters per hour for example it's pretty difficult to consume a liter and a half right. of fluid you know for a few hours in a row so i think that's one of the things that people need to be aware as well of as well and 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 be okay with well you know i might be five percent dehydrated which yes might affect my performance to a certain degree and my thermal regulation but again if you're exercising at a very submaximal rate for a long time the, the difference in performance is not going to be a major one, I wouldn't suggest, especially because you're, you're not at that, you know, that high intensity where everything needs to be a bit more optimized than at some maximal intensities. You mentioned this really interesting, you had this really interesting quote a few minutes ago that I want to elaborate on is, is that a lot of athletes, they have a plan for their nutrition. And normally that's, I'm going to take in 250 calories an hour. I'm going to take in 300 calories an hour, but they fail to have a plan for their hydration. And I think the, the, one of the roots of that is because it should change depending upon the temperature, right? One of the things that we do uh, with our athletes to try to get a fix on it, and I'm not sure that this is the best one, so maybe you can, you know, give me, give me a better tool to use in my toolkit here, is we just have the athletes, uh, athletes do a simple sweat test. They go out and they run for an hour in a certain environment, and they weigh themselves before and afterwards, and we try to get a, a gauge on their sweat rate. But I do it in 10 degree Fahrenheit increments to try to set some parameters across what we could use during an ultramarathon. Inevitably what happens is, is we kind of go in like two hour chunks almost throughout the ultramarathon. So from eight to 10, this is your hydration or this is your fluid replacement rate from 10 to 12. This is your fluid replacement rate. And we try to get some boundaries off of it. And sometimes it's two X from beginning to end. Sometimes it's like two and a half X. You start out with half a liter and you end up with a liter and a half, you know, at the, yeah. at the high points of the day, I'm trying to come up with is that a good way? Is that a reasonable way to do it? Or is there a better way to do it based on your research? And, and do the, do we need to get those temperature gradients any finer or does it even matter? No, I think what you're doing is actually quite good because that's you, so you've thought about it and you know that, you know, for running at a similar hour at a certain speed, um, you'll be sweating more, obviously, if you're in a hot condition and the cool conditions, I guess the thing I would say is maybe you'd also want to maybe tailor the, the speed at which you're running. Yeah. Um, for example, if you say, okay, run at, I don't know, eight miles an hour or something like that, then you probably want to say run a bit slower when it's hotter because you probably will run slightly slower when it's, when it's hotter, you're probably still going to sweat more anyways. Um, but just kind of, um, doing the incremental rise in temperature and maybe adjusting that to, um, to the speed at which you'll be running during your event. 
Um, because if you just do an hour run, you might go a bit quicker than you normally would, obviously producing a bit more heat and sweating a bit more. And then you'd think that you'd need more fluid than you actually need during the race. So maybe just thinking about that. But I think from a starting point, it's, it's actually perfect because you've, you've thought about the different environments and how they affect, um, potentially affect sweat rate. Yeah. Well, we can't get the environment. That's when it's the complicating factor. Cause you got to extrapolate, you got to like, you plot it out on Excel and try to extrapolate it to a certain extent, if that's going to be the case. Fortunately in ultra running, everything's at the same intensity. So it's like, you just go out and do a run and that's your ultra running intensity or it's pretty, or it's pretty oh, darn close. Yeah. And I think the other thing you have to bear in mind as well is, you know, at some point you have a, a maximum sweat, right? Right. So you're not going to sweat more than a certain amount. And the other thing to consider is uh, fluid absorption, you know, so, and there's, there's some research on there, but you know, you're not going to absorb, you know, two liters. You know, let's say at some point you calculate that someone needs to drink two liters per hour. Well, they're not going to absorb that. So that's fluid is just going to be sloshing around in their stomach. So you probably want to tailor that to, you know, probably no much more than a liter and a half, for example, or something like that. And the other thing associated with that is people probably want to try, uh, try that in training, which I'm sure you, you have them do, but just to see how they feel, because if it's the, for the first time they do it in training or in the race, as I'm sure you're right about, right? If you never try something for the first time in a race, then, you know, they get halfway and they get some gastrointestinal issues and so forth. So you probably want to try that strategy on a long run just to see how, um, how the athlete can cope with it. Okay. So I'm going to put you on the spot because this wasn't in the outline on the, on the absorption issue, because I, I know, and because these people are going to email me afterwards, if I don't ask this question, I know people who are in excess regularly of two liters an hour of sweat loss. They live in the Florida panhandle where it's a bazillion degrees and we've done these sweat tests on them before and they come back and it's like three liters an hour, three and a half liters an hour to which it's like, I look at them, I go, I ain't got nothing for you. Like I don't have anything like I don't, cause I know what the maximum absorption rate is. I know we can change it a little bit to a certain extent, but we're not going to get close to this four liters an hour absurdity that you're, that you're sweating out. I fail to have an answer for them. So help. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's a tough one. There's a range, so you probably probably a range is from one to one and a half liters per hour, you know. But the other thing you have to remember as well is um, if you're exercising at a higher intensity, then you have less blood going to the gut and you know um, the gastrointestinal system, which kind of slows down absorption as well. So if, another one is even if you're exercising in in a lower intensity, but in the heat because you need so much blood to go to the periphery for skin blood flow and so forth. Again, there's less blood in the central circulation to help with, with gastric emptying. So when it's hot and you're running at a high intensity, your gastric emptying rate is going to be lower than if you're running in a cool conditions at a lower intensity. So there's all those things. So, um, you know, if someone is sweating two, three liters per hour, um, they're probably, they probably physically can't drink or they can physically drink enough to replace that, but they won't be able to, um, to absorb it. And I guess the other thing too, I don't know if, I don't know if those athletes have tried, but if they've tried to actually consume that much fluid, if they can even handle having yeah. that much fluid stomach sloshing around, because I mean, two, three liters per hour running or just well, two liters per hour running, you'd have a lot of fluids sloshing around in there. That's about the maximum that in my, it, just in my scope of practice and our other coaches scope of practice, that's about the maximum that we can see being tolerated. But once again, in some situations we have this really big, just you, if the discrepancy is not that big, then I just kind of, I'm kind of like what you mentioned earlier. It's like, okay, you're going to have to deal with being a little bit dehydrated and that's fine. But it's, you know, when I ask an athlete to go out and do a five hour run and I know that they're going to have a sweat rate of three liters an hour and they can only take in two, 
they're five liters down at that simple math, right? That's so they're five liters down at the end of that run. That actually becomes kind of, kind of problematic from a lot of different perspectives. And I've tried to throw everything at this problem. Like we've tried, you know, the preload hydration, uh, products, which a lot of those work really well for a lot of athletes in, uh, uh, in those conditions. But outside of that, it's, I've, it's always been a stumper. Yeah. I mean, I think there's two things there. I mean, if someone is running five hours, um, I'm assuming they're running at a relatively sub maximum yeah, intensity yeah, yeah. fast. And so three liters, so a sweat rate of three liters per hour for someone running for five hours, that is, that is a very, very, very high sweat. Right. So there'd be few people in the world that sweat that much. Um, so it might be just a matter of making sure that that's really their, their actual, um, sweat rate. Cause that's quite a lot. Um, oh, I know. I'm even- trust me, man. <laughs> <laughs> done, they're out there. I know they're at the edge of the bell curve, but they're out there. Uh, but I guess the other thing too, you talked about prehydration. So one of the things that maybe they can do is hyperhydrate, yeah. um, meaning you know doing some fluid um, overload, so fluid intake a bit more before with some sodium in there uh, to kind of um, to kind of retain a bit more. One of the projects we're going to do soon is um, hyperhydration with glycerol. Um, so you retain a bit more fluid. So they can maybe do some of those things. So they'll start off their run, obviously, a bit heavier than they would normally. Um, but, you know, by the two-hour mark, they'll still maybe be dehydrated, but they'll be less dehydrated than they would if they, were, they weren't hyper or, or if they weren't hyperhydrated. Yeah, we've used... Um both the scratch hyperhydration product, which is just give the listeners a little bit of a perspective on that. I think that's like 1.6 gram. Oh man, I'm going to have to look this up. I'm going to chop this up really quick. Do you know off the top of your head what the grams is or the milligrams of sodium per liter is on that one? Oh no, I don't know. I think it's three. It's like, it's yeah. Hold on. I'm going to look it up really quick. Well, I mean, when I was in Qatar, for example, we'd do bike rides, right? So we'd start at 5.30 in the morning to be done by 8.30 because already at 8.30 was over 45 degrees Celsius. So we'd start very, very early in the um, in the day. And what I would do is I would actually take some oral, uh, oral rehydration solution. So, you know, when, you, when you're sick, for example, yeah. you can take those. So I would actually take that in my bottles yeah. and freeze them. Um, and drink that because it was high in sodium. And the fact that, um, you know, you can drink that and it doesn't feel salty, it's because you actually yeah. need the salt. Yeah. Yeah. We've used that as well. I just looked it up. So it's 1720 milligrams per half a liter. So that's 3440 for a liter, which, you know, a normal, a normal electrolyte drink is going to have 800 or 600 milligrams of sodium per liter. So it's literally, you know, double or triple that. Um, we've, we've used those products before, but it's always been in kind of like an acute setting, right? We know we have these athletes that are going to this hot weather event, or maybe it kind of sprung up on us. We're doing a camp, like a cross country type of camp. And then we don't have time to do that whole acclimation process. And some, I would say most athletes have a pretty good, pretty good response to that. How much of that is placebo or not, who knows, but it, we, we, we tend to have good, good results with it. And we see that in other practices as well, where they're, you know, hyperhydrating with some other type of commercial product. Yeah. Well, to be honest, I would imagine ultra runners are pretty dialed in. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) You'd be surprised. I'm going to have the story of what we're not so dialed in. We're going to bring that up next, but continue. (laughs) Hydration, nutrition, especially nutrition, because you're out there for so long. I mean, you know, after you bonk a few times, you think, all right, I need to work on this. I don't know. Maybe I'm... (laughs) 
you'd be surprised at how, how long it's taken us to figure out. So we've gone over like some of the acute nutritional interventions. Let's one of one of the other really remarkable pieces of the paper was the very incredible amount of detail on the acclimation and the acclimatization protocols that you can use to get ready for hot weather events. And I tell mm. the story all the time because it was kind of my indoctrination into, into ultra running and the physiologist, they just kind of chuckle, you know, about it. Um, but when I first started coaching ultra running, I, I had a literal trial by fire and the event that I was working with athletes in was the Badwater ultra marathon, which is really famous for being super hot. Yeah. And I didn't know, you know, I didn't know anything at the time. So I was trying to figure out what the athletes were doing to get prepared for this. And what I, what I stumbled upon was almost all of the athletes in the field had this combination of acclimation methods that was kind of like the Frankenstein version of what you presented in your, in your paper. They were wheeling their uh, treadmills into their laundry room they were turning up the some sort of like oil heater or something like that in the in, in their laundry room as well to make it hot. They would t- disconnect the dryer vent from the dryer and turn it on full blast and put it in their face to kind of simulate the, you know, the hot winds that Death Valley is so notorious for. And then they would put on a sweatsuit and a rain suit kind of over at over that. So you have all of the acclimation methods, right? You're trying to exercise in the environment, you're trying to increase your tor- core temperature with uh, controlled hyperthermia. You're trying to make a hot, you know, hot sauna kind of in this exact room. And and for whatever reason, whether they were just intimidated by bad water or you know it was just cultural or whatever, a lot of the athletes in this in the field, m- many of the athletes in the field had this like combination of all these things where they just kind of were throwing the kitchen sink all at the same time at the problem to kind of solve it. And you you peeled apart all of those different methods quite well and almost kind of rank ordered them a little bit uh, in the paper in terms of how effective they can be and also which ones are going to be the 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 kind of the least intrusive into an athlete's uh, training environment. And fortunately, we've got a lot smarter on that. So to <laughs> to your credit and all the the sports scientists ahead of you, but let's get let's give that outline a little bit on the different acclimation methods that we've learned since this terrible bad water time that we're starting to see kind of crop up in all sports. And then we can kind of like tailor it down into an ultra marathon situation. So the bad water idiots don't do this anymore. Well, you know what? I, th- I don't think it's a bad idea. I mean, I don't know. Because, because honestly, you know, like the thing, a lot of the things that I outline in the paper, for example, you need a certain, certain infrastructure to do right for some of them. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know if I'd tell someone to disconnect the dryer and put the, the vent in their face. <laughs> That's the yeah. tipping point. The dryer is the tipping point. Yeah. For you. <laughs> but to a certain degree, you kind of have to work with what you yeah. have, right? So, I mean, I guess the first thing to talk about is acclimation versus acclimatization, right? So acclimation is, you know, adapting to the heat in an artificial setting. So, you know, that's ideally if you have an environmental chamber, which I'm sure very few people have in their homes, um, where you can control temperature and humidity, or you sit in a sauna. So any kind of artificial way to do, to get heat adaptations is acclimation, whereas acclimatization is what we get from being outside in a hot environment. So if you are living in a hot area, um, then that's fine. You can just go outside and train. For example, pe- uh, the, the people that you mentioned earlier in the Florida panhandle where it's hot and humid, obviously they'll be acclimatized to that hot and humid environment. 
Um, even people who are living in, you know, in the Northern United States, you know, they get acclimatized through the summer by training outside. So that's acclimatization compared to acclimation. Um, so there's kind of a combination of, of things you can do. So the protocols that I'll talk about, some of them are purely acclimation protocols. So you need a very structured environment in which to do it. And some are acclimatization and kind of some cross over. So I guess the first one is kind of self-paced exercise. So you go outside, you do your workout, you do your run, um, and whatever you know your workout is that day, that's what you do. And essentially, you get a, you can get eat adaptation from running outside if it's hot, but you can also do that on inside, right? So if you have a, a certain workout or a long run, you could also jump on the treadmill. So that's one you can do both as acclimation and acclimatization, um, and that. You know, it doesn't interfere too much, obviously, with your training program. But if you're supposed to hit specific speeds, for example, during a run or, you know, those intervals will be compromised in the heat. So you need to know that. Um, but if you will do that in, in a hot environment, maybe do the intervals at the beginning of the workout where, you know, your, your performance will be less compromised because your thermal strain is less elevated. And then you just kind of do the rest of the run afterwards, probably at a lower speed, but you'll still be in the hot environment. Um, then the other one is constant load exercise. So that's a bit easier to do in the lab uh, because you say, okay, I want to exercise at 60% of my VO2 max or at a given um, speed, well, which, which will equate to a given speed. So if you're running at, I don't know, six, seven, eight, 10 miles an hour, whatever it is, you put that on the treadmill and you just run at a constant rate. Um, and you'll find that in the heat, your, obviously your core temperature and heart rate are going to creep up. So it's going to get harder and harder and harder. Um, and then obviously, if you want to do that outside, it's going to be a bit more difficult, depending on, you know, if you're running on a flat surface uh, because of terrain changes and so forth. So it's hard to keep a certain speed, but it's, it's doable. Um, then the other one is you can think of controlled hyperthermia or isothermal heat acclimation. And that, that was developed in the 60s by a, by a researcher named Fox. And he was trying to basically look at um, eliciting a similar core temperature every day because his thoughts were that um, during the constant load adaptation protocol, if you're running at the same speed every day, as you adapt, you know, your core, your, your core temperature might not increase as much towards the end of your protocol of acclimation. After 10 days, for example, your heart rate may be lower. So the stimulus for adaptation is maybe a bit lower. But having said that, Oftentimes with the controlled hyperthermia protocol, we, we target a core temperature of 38.5, but during constant load exercise, by the time you finish exercise, you're well above that. So even after day 10, you're well above 38.5. So in the controlled hyperthermia, the idea is to get to a certain core temperature and then as quickly as possible, you know, 38.5 degrees uh, Celsius, um, which I'm not too sure how much that is, 90, high 90s, I guess, in terms of Fahrenheit. So you get to that core temperature and then you maintain that. Now, the issue with that, though, is that you might find that you have to slow down quite a lot when you're in the hot environment, because to maintain that core temperature, if you keep running, you'll, you'll, you know, you'll, you'll keep increasing your core temperature. So you might have to stop running, start again, stop again after you reach that. Um, so from a workout perspective, it'll be a bit uneven, but it definitely does induce adaptations. Um, so a few years ago, we kind of suggested the method of controlling heart rate. Um, because of that intimate relationship that I talked about before with core temperature and, and heart rate. So if you're exercising at a given work rate or speed, your core temperature will go up, but your heart rate will be a linear increase with that. So if you're exercising in the heat at a given heart rate, so for example, the heart rate associated with holding, I don't know, eight miles per hour, for example, then 
you start off at eight miles per hour, obviously, because your heart rate doesn't go up, but you run like that for 15 minutes. And then after that, you adjust the treadmill speed to maintain that heart rate. Now, naturally, you know, your the treadmill speed will decrease throughout your session if it's 90 minutes, two hours to maintain that heart rate. But as you adapt, as the days goes on, the days go on, then that speed will kind of creep up um, for that same heart rate. And that's probably logistically a little bit easier to do for someone who doesn't have um, you know, a core temperature monitoring system. Um, because when you want to, when you measure um, core temperature, you want an accurate measurement. So those, you know, those tympanic temperatures, those guns for the ears, that's not the most accurate. Under the tongue is not the most accurate. So um, you can do esophageal temperature, which is a probe through the nose down the esophagus. I don't think people are going to be doing that at home. Um, rectal temperature, maybe they can do that. Not always pleasant when you're wearing a workout to check your rectal temperature. Um, or if you have a bit more money, you can buy like um, those systems with pills. So you swallow a pill um, and then you can monitor your core temperature that way. Having said that, the systems are, you know, a couple thousand dollars and each pill is probably going to be maybe 75 US dollars. So, you know, it's, it's pretty expensive um, per Per, per running. So if you're, if you go by, by heart rate, you'll probably get to um, a high heart or a similar core temperature every day and then do that. Now, the alternative to that, if you don't have a hot environment in which to train is you can use either sauna bathing or hot water immersion. So you can do your workout outside in cool conditions if you can't acclimatize. And then obviously if you do that, you don't compromise your workout. Then after your workout, you can jump into a hot bath of roughly 40 degrees Celsius, which is around hundred degrees, I think Fahrenheit. And, you know, for the first time, maybe stay in there for 20 minutes and then try to build that up, you know, to, to 40 minutes. And there's some nice uh, research from a colleague, Neil Walsh, who's demonstrated that kind of actually works quite well. Um, so you kind of work with what you have. You can also go into a sauna afterwards. You probably spend a bit less time in a sauna because that's very hot. So you're probably not going to spend 40 minutes in there. Um, but that's another way to induce um, heat adaptation. So there's quite an array of, of methods or protocols that you can use. And fundamentally, you've kind of got two categories, right? You've got the active category where you're doing something, right? You're doing the exercise and both the exercise and or the environment is what's causing the rise in core temperature. And then you have the passive modalities, which is mainly sauna bathing and a hot water immersion bath where you're not doing anything inside of there. And that's why I always get a crack out of the bad water people because they're trying to do them all. They're trying to do both the passive and the active kind of at the same time. Yeah. But that that's not, not, neither here nor there. Th there's been a lot of a reasonable amount of consternation around, okay, which one is better? Which one is going to produce the most amount of adaptation if – handling the heat is mission critical to whatever event that, that, uh, that, that, uh, that I'm doing. And I think we're starting to get, like, like I mentioned earlier, I think we're starting to get some like reasonable consensus developed, developed around there. That's actually, and what I mean by reasonable is like athletes can actually implement it. Sometimes mm -hmm. we get these things from sports science and they're just completely, they're just, they're, they're not, they're not practical at all. But I think in this yeah. case, we're starting to get some things that are actually implement that are actually implementable for even everyday athletes, not just athletes that have access to a core core temperature pills like we do over at the training center that's right behind me. Um, yeah. So, what would you advise athletes in terms of how like how to navigate that, and what modalities are are the better ones to pick out of that array that you just mentioned? Yeah, that's a good question, and I would say that you know 
Um, any heat acclimation is better than no heat acclimation, right? So that's the first thing. So if you can heat, heat acclimate, and then it's better than not doing it. So whatever is available to you is probably the first port of call, right? So like I said before, and I've, I've, like you've mentioned, you know, not everybody has access to an environmental chamber. So there's certain things that some people won't be able to do. Um, and having said that, you know, there was, there was a meta-analysis from another colleague, Chris Tyler, a few years ago, and he compared the controlled hypothermia protocol with constant load protocols and, you know, the adaptations of several papers put together, and they showed that there wasn't any difference. So I think, you know, if you acclimatize, or acclimate, you will get some benefits. Um, and the other thing too is that, you know, we think of either doing the, the passive or the active approach. And obviously the active approach is, is very specific and you have endogenous, so, you know, internal heat production and exogenous external heat production to kind of increase your core temperature compared to just the passive one, which is the environment. Um, but sometimes if athletes are very, very fit, they don't necessarily need to exercise in the heat because, you know, that's not part of exercising in the heat as well could improve performance. But if you're already very fit and you just want the heat adaptations, then maybe you just do the passive approach, for example, right? And then, then you don't compromise your workout so you can do that. So I guess if we bring all that together, I would say first thing is, well, again, acclimate if you can. Secondly, use what you have. So if you don't, if it's not, if it's hot outside, well then go outside and acclimatize, you know? If you're doing a key workout, we'll do it early in the morning or in the evening where it's cooler and you can hit your target race times. Um, and if you're doing a heat acclimatization session, we'll go in the hottest part of the day, make sure you're well hydrated and so forth. So use that environment that you have at your disposal. If it's cool, um, then maybe it is a matter of buying a few heaters, you know, put that in the room with your treadmill and um, putting on maybe an extra layer and trying to get your core temperature up that way. Or do your workout in cool conditions, jump into your bath, just go to a local hardware store or something, get like a, a thermometer for your bath and then just jump in there afterwards. Um, I think it's important to note though that there'll be a lot of blood pooling in the legs. So when you jump out of the bath, take your time. Not, <laughs> blood pressure will drop. So you don't want to, you want to fall and bump your head. Um, you know, or if it's a case of, you know, then you're exercising on your treadmill in a hot room, um, just put on your heart rate monitor and try to hold, you know, the heart rate that's, that's um, associated with a low intensity that you can hold for a while um, and adjust the, the, the pace that way. So I'd say that, and that's even what we're recommending for athletes now, you know, uh, it's not necessarily one protocol yeah. per se, it's kind of an amalgamation of those because if you're exposed to the heat, then you will induce that adaptation. So it doesn't have to be that one protocol. So for example, you know, even if it's hot outside, uh, you can do, you know, your acclimatization run, but then on another run on the weekend, you can just jump in the bath after, after your run. So it's just maybe looking at what's available to you and kind of tailoring it to your, to your unique circumstances. I mean, you're almost channeling verbatim. You don't know this, but I'm laughing my ass off right now. You're almost channeling verbatim one of my longtime colleagues, uh, Lindsay Golich. And I don't know if you've had any interaction with her. She runs the high altitude uh, uh, and high altitude and environmental performance center. It's always a mouthful to say here at the Olympic Training Center. And I've known her for years. And so she's got all the tools that you just mentioned, right? The, the, the pill thermometers, she's got a room that you can bring into any, you know, any altitude, heat and uh, humidity combination that on earth that she can kind of set things to, she can wheel in equipment, you know, ad nauseum, do kind of do whatever. And she's just like, listen, if we can get people just to do heat acclimation stuff, that's the win. They can integrate mm -hmm. it into the life. That's a second win. And then we look at how much does it affect training? 
And for the really high level athletes, that's a huge consideration, huge consideration if you impact the quality or and or the quantity of training that they're doing. But for, you know, mid-pack blokes like you and I, you know, who have no shot at making an Olympic team, it's probably the impact, the impact that doing something in an artificially hot environment a few times or several times a week is probably not that much. We're still going to gain fitness from those types of sessions. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a good point because, I mean, we're, um, our labs are two, three kilometers away from the Australian Institute of Sport. So ahead of the Olympics, we have a lot of the athletes coming, even the Paralympics, you know, they come in and train. And again, it comes back to what we were mentioning before. Like, yeah, the ideal protocol might be 10 days a <laughs> but they're never going to do that right because usually you're implementing this you know a month or two out exactly and then it kind of coincides with your taper and your build phase so you have to be careful and 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 do that so what they do even is like two three months out they come in just twice a week and do a run so you know is that optimal no it's probably not optimal to do it twice a week for eight weeks relative to maybe 10 14 days in a row let's face it but again you know you have to get your training right. Cause that's the other thing too. I mean, if it's fine to acclimatize and acclimate, but I know a lot of these, a lot of these things like, you know, the technological, technological advances and these little kind of training tools or the little, little kind of things to optimize performance. They're great. You know, that 1%, but if you don't get the 99% right, you know, underneath that, there's no point improving by 1% if you could improve by 50% by just getting your training right. So I think the first thing, you know, in anything is just getting the training right, getting your base right, being prepared. And then those kind of little tweaks you get, you know, towards the end. So in terms of acclimation, that's what I would tell someone initially. I mean, make sure you're training. You can, you can acclimatize passively all you want, but, you know, if you're going to run 100 miles and you haven't run 100 miles before, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it kind of it kind of seems intuitive, but you know we're bombarded by all these kind of ways to optimize performance. Whereas you know we have to think of the important stuff first. So I think yeah. So in terms of when you're planning your your heat acclimatization or acclimation, use what you have and then do it progressively because um, there's different ways of doing it as well, right? I mean, you you either do, you know, for example, twice a week for a few months leading in, or you can do maybe, let's say you're six weeks out of your major competition and you're in a down week or something like that, then you can do maybe five, six days of intense heat acclimation, then you top it up once or twice mm-hmm. a week. Uh, and we kind of go through that a little bit in the review. So, and that's just also a trial and error, you know, like how people kind of uh, react, because if you acclimate, um, for like really well, you can spend, you know, a month keeping training. Cause if you train, you'll still maintain some of that acclimation because you are training, you're sweating, you're increasing your core temperature and so forth. And then if you top it up just before your competition, the week before with two or three sessions in the heat, then you'll regain some of those acclimation adaptations. So just kind of thinking big picture as well. So working back from, you know, your competition, uh, and then working back to see what's available to you and what you can do. It's probably the best approach, I'd say. Uh, I started using that protocol, that two-phase protocol, one like one one heat acclimation block, like six weeks out-ish, six to eight weeks out, and another one the week of. But honestly, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna sound like I'm patting myself on the back a little bit, and I'm really not. Honestly, I was I was, and I did it before a lot of this research came out, and a lot of the practice came out as well. That's what a, that was the pat on the back that I was trying not to do. But honestly, I was doing it because I or I switched over to doing that more because I was afraid of screwing it up all at the very end because I didn't know how the athlete was going, or I felt like I was guessing too much 
on how the athlete was going to react by putting in this hot and heavy heat or sauna or whatever I was going to use at the time protocol, like during the taper or in the last week of the race or whatever. And so I implemented that two phase just to almost do a trial run, even without, I mean, we knew a little bit about the residual effects at the time, but not nearly enough to where I was going to take credit for being that smart. Now it comes out to where it's like, okay, if we can do these kind of top off sessions, I think that that's, that can be quite effective. And this is, this is where the rubber meets the road, I think. Because everybody's going to, we, we've kind of made the case that everybody needs to do something. People always want to know how much for how long, right? How many Mm -hmm. days in a row do I need to do this for? What are the different time courses of adaptations? And there's this really cool, I was just trying to find it. There's this, ah, there we go. There's a really cool figure in the paper. It's figure 21, which I have a rendition of this in my book, by the way. Um, this is, this is one of your, uh, papers, correct? Your paper specifically. Brilliant, uh, brilliant graph. I've probably seen this 50 times in the last two years in different lay articles and scientific journals and things like that, that describe the time course of adaptations for all of these very specific physiological phenomenons that are going on, plasma volume, heart rate, core temperature, skin temperature, and things like that. I'll put a link obviously in the show notes to the entire paper. So somebody can like check this out, but why, why is that time course for adaptation so important to understand? Well, I think you nailed on, you you hit the nail on the head there. It's important to understand that just because you want to know, you know, what adaptations develop and how quickly in terms of your preparation. Right. So, and I think if you look at the figure, you'll see that, you know, most of the adaptation is developed to a pretty solid percentage within the first week. So that's why, you know, optimally you want 10 to 14 days to get as much adaptation as you can. But people have, have kind of tried to tailor more short-term heat acclimation protocols now, you know, five to seven days for athletes who are traveling and need kind of a quick fix acclimation protocol because, yes, maybe it's not optimal, but you get a lot of adaptation within the first week. Um, so I think one thing to remember as well, however, is that, you know, this is kind of a, a rough estimate, right? Right. So everybody has an individualized response depending on the dose and so forth. So even the same person doing the same protocol might see that the adaptations for the reduction in heart rate rest or the reduction in core temperature during exercise might be slightly different from one, one year to the other, depending on, you know, how well they're, they're coming in to the acclimation protocol with their training and so forth. But generally speaking, we see that one of the first adaptations in is, is an expansion of plasma volume. Um, so your blood volume, plasma volume start to increase, and that obviously supports the cardiovascular response and supports that increase in sweat rate, which kind of develops a bit more progressively. And then you'll see a reduction in resting core temperature um, and resting, resting heart rate. Now, now those those reductions as well it's important to note that obviously the less fit you are and you acclimatize you probably see a greater reduction in your core temperature and your heart rate right so if you're very very fit that's one of the things to remember as well and i touched upon it earlier if you're very fit and you're running all the time you know you're, you're getting to a high core temp well not a high core temperature but you're increasing your core temperature you're sweating you're increasing your skin blood flow so you're already partly or partially acclimatized because you're you're fit and exercising on a regular basis so the level and the magnitude of adaptation for someone who's got a resting heart rate of 45 is not isn't you know the scope's not much right so if your resting heart rate 75 well then you have a bit of room to work with so um and the same thing with resting core temperature so if you're very lean and you have a resting core temperature in the morning of um 
well, in degrees Celsius, you know, 36.5 or something like that, there's less scope for that to change. So, you know, the change that, that the changes that can occur vary between, between individuals. Um, anyways, I digress, but yeah, so these things kind of, kind of develop. So the reduction in core temperature obviously affects the reduction in heart rate. So if you start off your exercise at a lower core temperature, and then if you're running at the same speed and after an hour, you have a lower core temperature, then obviously that'll affect your heart rates because you're less hot. So your heart rate is going to be a bit lower and your cardiovascular response is going to be better supported by a greater blood volume. So therefore your cardiovascular response can be lower. So your RPE, so perceived exertion is probably going to be a bit lower. You'll feel more comfortable in the heat after, um, after you've done, you know, some, some training. So after four five, six days, some of these things kind of develop. Um, plasma volume tends to kind of increase quite quickly after, and after a week or so, it starts progressing, not back down to baseline, but going down. Now there is some suggestion that, you know, if you maintain a thermal stimulus, you can maintain your adaptation. Uh, but those projects haven't had like a control condition where people um, don't, and that was with dehydration. So I won't get into that, but typically it goes up and goes back down a, a little bit. Um, all of that obviously increases um, performance because you know your core temperature, your heart rate, your thermal and cardiovascular responses are lower. You feel better, so obviously performance is going to be improved. But here, here's like the this is why this this graph in particular is so practical, is it sets the boundaries for how many days you actually need, and when the point of diminishing returns starts to starts to kind of rear its head. And our, our, in the coaching community, and you've seen this at the Australian Institute for Sport, we see it over here at the Olympic Training Center, the acclimation protocols are pretty standard within, you know, just five or six days. It's anywhere between six and 15 days or something like that, right? If you want to put the, the kind of the widest bookends on it. We don't see people doing it, or at least we shouldn't see people doing it for a month, right? Because then you're getting all the stress and very little adaptation, which then starts to impact the workouts and things like that. That's why I wanted to bring this out is, is that it, it, it really does very, very nicely in, in a little bit complicated way because you're trying to track down all the different physiological mechanisms. It kind of puts the bookends on the process of how, how much time you need to reap the benefits, which is yeah. always what we're concerned about with endurance sports. It's like, how much time do you need for the adaptation? Is it a day? Is it a week? Is it a month? Is it a year? And in this case, it's the, between six and 14 or 12 days or something like that. Like it's not that much time, I guess is what I'm trying to point out. Yeah. I guess the only caveat with that is if those days should be in a row, right? right? Yeah. If anything, or if anything, you know, you can take one day on one day off and so forth, which extends that to 30 total days, but 15 days of acclimation. So, you know, so if we go back to the scenario before, uh, you know, doing it twice a week, for example, for five, six weeks, you know, if you do it twice a week for 10 weeks, it is 10 sessions, but it's not the same as doing 10 sessions in a row. So that's one of the things I guess you need to, to consider. But if you are doing, you know, as you said before, a block six weeks before and then kind of a top up afterwards, then yes, those five, six days would be all right. And in another paper that we've done, we looked at the decay of, of heat acclimation. And there's not a ton of papers there yeah. on so what we what we did is we, we focused on heart rate, core temperature during exercise, and sweat rate a little bit. So essentially what we determined was that you know if you do a good 10, 14 day block of heat acclimation and you get you know what we term optimal, optimally acclimatized, um, which is another thing I, I'll chat about in a second. So if you do that, you know, then if you spend two weeks without being exposed to the heat, you'll lose about 
um, 35% of your adaptations um, for each of those, you know, that, that reduction in heart rate, core temperature and sweat rate. So for every day outside of the heat, you lose about 2.5% of the adaptation. Um, you know, but again, that's, that's a ballpark figure, you know, individuals will respond, will respond differently. Not and of the you, performance of the adaptation. Yeah, I wanted, so I wanted, I wanted to make that clear because a lot of people will say, Oh yeah. shit, if I don't get in the sauna the day before the race, I'm going to lose 2.5% of my performances of the adaptation. Of the adaptation. Yeah. So for example, if your core temperature decreases by, um, I don't know, half a degree, for example, so it'll be. 22.5% of that 0.5 right. degree. Exactly. So it's, it's different. Um, and I guess the other thing too, is that um, there's, um, there's one Mikhail Horowitz has done lots of work in the animal model and she's done what you talked about before, like a month of acclimation, two months of acclimation. And this is putting rats in, I think dogs as well in like 34 degrees, which is not super hot, but in there, all the time for a month or two months. And she's also looked at dehydrating them and keeping them dehydrated by 10% for a while. So obviously things that we can't necessarily do in humans. And, and what that has shown is that there's changes that occur at the kind of epigenetic level. Um, so what we're looking at is more physiological changes and kind of that phenotype. So those little changes in physiology that occur in 10, 14 days, but there's obviously more changes that it can occur. Um, I'm not suggesting that someone lives in 34 degrees, you know, and gets dehydrated for, you know, for, for a month. That's not what I'm saying at all. There's, you know, there's difference. But the, the, the thing with the dehydration as well is that it blunted some of the adaptations because, um, because the dehydration was so severe. So in terms of physiological adaptations now, yes, you know, 10 to 14 days is probably what the recommendations are. Um, and then if you tailor that, to different times of the week or prolong it, then obviously you need to take into consideration that it's not going to be optimal, but you still will get adaptations. Yeah. And once again, I encourage athletes that are not familiar with this just to go and look at that chart. Even if you don't, you know, understand physiology all that well, you get a really good sense of the time course for adaptations when you're looking at that. And when you're trying to DIY it or yourself or, you know, coaches trying to design it for you and they're not used to these protocols that it just gives a good, what's the word I'm looking for? Like operating parameters for how to set up the protocol. And even if you're copy pasting the Australian Institute for sports protocol, which a lot of people do, or the USOC's protocol, which a lot of people tend to do, or whoever they heard on whatever podcast is protocol, at least then now you kind of understand the physiology behind why those protocols have been developed, the length of time that, that they're recommending for the dual thing that I mentioned earlier that I just stumbled upon. And now it's got some sort of, you know, scientific efficacy behind it that I can, that I can kind of pin on. There's, there's reasons for it, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. I think another thing that people can do as well is, you know, if they're, if they're doing this by trial and error and they want to see if it's working and, it, you know, if it's efficacious is just have yourself, plan yourself a session, like a standard session where, you know, you do it at the same time of day. Um, you weigh yourself pre-post, whether you drink or not, just make sure you drink the same thing. Um, look at your heart rate and your speed. So just go on there at a given speed. And then just track your heart rate, for example, you know, um, you don't have to track your core temperature. If you can track core temperature, perfect. But just look, for example, you know, whether it's running an hour at, I don't know, eight miles an hour, just jump on, do that, track your heart rate throughout, track your, your body mass pre and post. And then when you're acclimatized, you should find that your heart rate is going to be lower, you'll feel better, and then your sweat rate is higher, so you'll lose more 
body mass during that. So those are two very simple things, you know, your heart rate and your body mass to see if your acclimation protocol is, is, is working. That is a brilliant place to leave it. The two simple things, the things that probably matter the most, you're sweating more and your exertion level, your heart rate is lower for heat. any, any heat acclimation protocol that we just talked about. Yeah. And I think the important thing with, um, with, with weighing yourself, and I'm sure you do this with your athletes is, you know, obviously, ideally you weigh yourself, you know, nude before and nude afterwards. And if you drink, you need to know, you know, how much you had in your bottle before and how much you have in your bottle afterwards. So you can subtract that. So, you know, in an ideal scenario, you weigh yourself nude before and after and you don't drink, but, um, you know, if, if you are drinking, just make sure that you, um, you know, how much you drank to kind of take that off your body mass. Cause obviously that's how much you sweated during that, that one hour. It's amazing how it comes down to such simple stuff. <laughs> yeah. Why are we doing yeah, you have to simplify it, right? Uh, no, right. Well, especially for most of our listeners are gonna be lay audience, you know, they don't have access to all these tools and things like that. We really gotta boil it down to some simple stuff. But everybody's curious about it because as I mentioned uh offline, ultramarathon is one of those things where either part or a, a small part or a, or a long or a big part of a lot of ultra marathons are contested in hot environments. And it really behooves athletes to prepare for those environments because that can make, that can literally be a make or break uh, part, part of the race. And it's good when we have Olympics come around in hot weather environments like Tokyo, because everybody ups their game. I mean, you guys did it. Australian Institute for Sport did it. The uh, Olympic Training Center here did it. Everybody, the Canadians did a really good job with it as well. Everybody ups their game because they want their athletes to perform. And if one of the determinants of performance is how well they handle the heat, you know, you got to know what you're doing there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Where can people learn a little bit more about your lab and the work that you do? Um, so I'm at UC Rye, so the University of Canberra Research Institute for um, Exercise. So you can have a look at that. Also, if you're interested in some of this stuff, you can follow me on, on Twitter. And I post a lot of the um, a lot of the papers, obviously, that I publish and so forth. So I think that's at um, Dr. J. Perriard, so D-R-J. P-E-R-I-A-R-D. Um, so feel free to obviously have a look at that. And I think this paper, I think that you'll send a link to is, is um, the biggest works I've ever done. So it's <laughs> a good starting point anyways. Um, and we also have a book on uh, exercising in the heat. Um, and within that, um, so it's a Springer book. So um, a colleague of mine edited that, a colleague of mine and myself edited that. And there's chapters in there about um, for different sports as well, about thermoregulation, heat exchange, hydration, all those things. So if you're interested in that, it's um, uh, exercise under heat stress, the, thermo the thermophysiology of exercise, I think. I will um, uh, put links to that in the in the show notes. Uh, but yeah. once again, congratulations on, congratulations on the paper. It's something that I'll use as a resource and our coaches will use it as a resource. And I'm sure other people out there will find it fascinating. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for having me on. I love to talk about this stuff, as you can see. That's yeah, awesome. It's awesome. We'll have you back on. How's that? When summer rolls around and everybody's really interested in it. No, well, our summer's coming up in a few months. That's true. <laughs> very good. All right. We're going to let you go. Well, thank you very much. All right, folks. There you have it. There you go. Thanks to Julian for coming on the podcast previously. I appreciate everybody listening to this. I hope you guys checked it out the first time and learned something the second listen through and paid particular attention to this two-phase protocol that we are going to discuss next week 
April 21st. We're going to get one of our coaches back on the podcast today who's working with a number of athletes. And we're going to talk about this aspect from a very practical point of view because I realize a lot of you out there, you might not have access to a sauna. You might want to run around in your puffy jacket. You might only have access during certain types of day, days and times. And I realize that real world implication and real world time constraints is something that everybody has to live with. And it's our job as coaches to help balance all of those things inclusive with the training that you need to be doing at the time. So stay tuned for that episode. Appreciate the heck out of all the listeners out there. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and your training partners. It means a lot to me and it helps the podcast out tremendously. That is it for today, folks. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.